Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So with that, Matthew chapter 5, uh, we will be beginning <clears throat> reading in um, verse 21. And the word of the Lord reads this way. You have heard it said that those of old, you shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and that he put you in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid, until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said that you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. For if you're right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that those who to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to, uh, to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is a city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from from evil. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. But if anyone would sue you and and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes the sun, his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? For therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the life-giving Word of the Lord. <clears throat> Philip Yancey, he is an author of several books, among which are What's So Amazing About Grace and Where Is God When It Hurts and The Jesus I Never Knew. He once wrote this, Thunderously, inarguably, the Sermon on the Mount proves that before God we all stand on level ground. Murderers and temper throwers, adulterers and lusters, thieves and coveters, we are all, we are all desperate, and that is the fact, the only, that is in fact the only state appropriate for human beings who want to know God. Having fallen from the absolute ideal, we have nowhere to land but in the safety net of absolute grace. I want to welcome you back this morning to our series titled Foundations of a Radically Different Life, which is based on a sermon, uh, which is based on the Sermon uh, of the Mounts. Um, which is found in Matthew chapter uh, chapter five through seven, and uh, and last week we began this series by talking about and understanding the key to uh, this sermon that Jesus gives us in this text. Because let's just face it: if you read these words, if you read this sermon, 
And you look at the things that Jesus says here without really understanding the key, without actually knowing the context of where Jesus is coming from, what you're going to do is you're going to be struck with this idea that this is just simply an impossible list of things to live up to because it's impossible, right? I mean, because how many of you have perfectly controlled your anger? How many of you have perfectly controlled your words? How many of you would, when somebody comes to steal your stuff, would say, hey, come back here. Um, actually, I have some more stuff for you to take as well, right? How many of you, right, would, would, would do that? Or how many of you, you know, would lend people money, just any person money, without even any thought of getting paid back, right? The fact of the matter is I don't see any of you have gouged out your eyeball. None of you have cut off your, your, your hand yet, though I know that, that you have all sinned with your hands, whether it is to steal or to hit or to type gossip via text message or social media, right? And last week, we, we, you know, as we said last week, if, if the Sermon on the Mount is this big list of things for us to do, then we might as well forget about it because we're going to fail. In fact, we've already failed. We've already fallen short of this ideal. Right? And so there must be something more to this. There must be more than creating a list of things that we know that we need to follow. Love your neighbor as yourself. Check. All right? Love your enemies. Okay. Huh? Um, turn the other cheek. All right. If your eye causes you to sin, then uh, we'll just skip that one. Okay. Give everybody who asks of you. Okay, check, right? There must be something more to this sermon than just that list, right? And there is. You see, the key to understanding this text is what we saw last week. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, which is itself a shocking statement. Jesus says, unless your righteousness is greater than this religious elite of people who, who have worked their entire life to discipline themselves, to perfectly keep the law, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, which leads to the question, who can do such a thing? Who can live such a righteous life? Because it's impossible. But what we discovered is that Jesus isn't talking about our external behavior. He's talking about... He isn't talking about our ability to keep the law. He's actually talking about the radical change that happens inside of us by his power and works its way from the inside out. In fact, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and the scribes and these religious elite people. And he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but, but are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, Jesus didn't come to change your behavior. He didn't come to change your behavior. He came to change your hearts, right? And understand, and we understand that the difference of that, even in our own lives, we understand the difference between behavior and a person's hearts. I mean, how many of you have kids or have had kids in your own life? All right? And, and, and of those kids, you know, be honest, of those kids, how many of your kids have actually maybe done something mean or hurtful to some other kid or said something mean or hurtful to some other kid? Right? I think all of you, right? All your kids have done something like that. Right? And what do we say to them when we find out right, that they've done something wrong? What are our words? You go say you're sorry. Right? I mean, that's what we say. Go say you're sorry. You know? And what's their reaction? How do they respond to that? They go, I'm sorry, right? I mean, we, we know they say the words, but are they really sorry? You and I both know what you have as a child who has complied with your physical instructions by saying the words, I'm sorry, but internally you know that they're not truly sorry from the heart. We see it. We know it, right? You have, you know, you, you know that, that, that they've said the words, but they don't mean it. Their, their actions, you know, say one thing, but their heart, communicate something completely different, right? This is the same idea. Outward obedience to the law is just like that. Following the rules, you know, for, for rules' sake is just like that. And as parents, we know what it's like to have children who obey our commands, but, you know, because they just don't want to get in trouble, right? 
They obey our commands because they don't want to be in trouble, but, but not because they want to please us. I, I mean, when I tell my kids that it is time to go in the backyard and to clean up after the dogs, they'll do it. They will absolutely do it. But it's not because they want to make me happy, right? It's not that they live to, for, for me to shine my beautiful face upon them, right? It's not because they're motivated by the joy of our, our relationship. They do it because they know there's consequences that follow that. They, they, their actions do one thing, but their heart is somewhere else. External obedience to God is like that. Oftentimes, right, it has nothing to do with what's your heart. I mean, you could confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but if it doesn't correspond to something in your heart, it's meaningless. You can outwardly worship God and lift up your hands, but unless your heart is connected to a longing to be near God, your worship doesn't mean anything. You can obey all the rules and all the commandments, but your heart, if it's not right with God, you're a hypocrite. Right? That's exactly what Jesus means. Jesus didn't come here to change your external behavior. He came to change your hearts. He came to remove that heart of stone and put in you a new heart of flesh. He came to radically transform you inside out. That is the point. That's why the Bible says things like, you must be born again, right? That's an expression that communicates a big idea. It's a metaphor for a radical transformation that happens in the life of the believer. You were once spiritually dead, you become born again, and now you are spiritually alive. You're made new, you're regenerated. All those things communicate a big radical idea. Salvation is a radical internal transformation brought on by God. And what Jesus is communicating is unless you have experienced that transformation, unless your heart is changed supernaturally by God, and unless his righteousness is given to you, and you have received it through faith, you are not going to see the kingdom of heaven. Because all of your external righteous deeds, just like the Pharisees and the scribes, all that you do is not going to amount to a hill of beans. That's the key to understanding this entire text. It's the key to understanding this entire Sermon on the Mount, that unless there is a radical transformation in here, you are not going to live the radically different life that God is calling you to with no amount of external law-keeping and obedience that's going on out there, which is really the point of the text that we're looking at today. I mean, please, I want you to understand, hear me. Jesus is not giving you a new set of rules to live by. Jesus is pointing out that true obedience to the law right, is, is more than simply following rules. It's a change in your heart, and, and it must be brought on by God himself. In fact, let's, we're going to take a look at the text here in just a minute, but before we jump in, let's just kind of remind ourselves where we are in the context of this. Jesus is the gospel that is focused on proclaiming that Jesus is the king, right, of all things, that he is the Messiah. He's the reigning king that was to come. That is what, it's, what, 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 what um, Matthew's idea is all about. And the Sermon on the Mount, then, is the king's declaration. It's Jesus' declaration about what the kingdom life is supposed to be like and what it's supposed to be like for those who belong to the king, who actually are his citizens. And, and, and the sermon opens up, then, with an introduction called the Beatitudes in which Jesus declares really how radically different this life in the kingdom is to be compared to the world around us. He says, blessed are the poor in spirits. He says, blessed are you if you're persecuted. Blessed when people revile you and hate you and call you all kinds of names is what he says. But we know that the world teaches the opposite. Blessed are the proud, right? Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the people that get their way. Right? Blessed are you when everybody likes you and talks well of you. Blessed are you when you can settle the score and get even. The Beatitudes introduce us to a radically different life in the kingdom of heaven. And, and again, we've covered all of this in, in great detail in another series uh, that you can find on our church website or our SoundCloud page called Hashtag Blessed. But this introduction helps us to see just how radically different the life is to be. And then the next section, Jesus calls, uh, calls his followers to be salt and light. And again, that seems like a weird expression because Jesus said you're supposed to be salt. What does that mean? It means you're supposed to be a preserving influence in the world around you. 
because that's what salt was. It was a preservative. It kept things from rotting. That's the idea. Christians here in the world are to preserve the world from getting worse. We're supposed to be a preserving influence. And then he says, we are also to be light, right? That we are to be a light that shines by our good works so that other people will see that and be attracted to the kingdom of God. You see, not only is the kingdom about radically different living, but it's also about us being called to shine the light of Christ so that other people can see that and glorify God and want to come to the kingdom as well. And then we get to the section we covered last week where Jesus clears the air and says, yes, I have come. The kingdom has come. But guess what? The old law has not been done away with. The old law still stands. Jesus came to the earth to be king and to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. He didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. And as we talked about, he fulfills the law by, number one, completely obeying the law on our behalf. Number two, fulfilling all the prophecies that are found in the law regarding the Messiah. Number three, by fulfilling the roles of the law, such as the sacrifices for sin and the, the, pre, the, the high priest who intercedes before God and the whole sacrificial system Jesus fulfilled for us. And then four, he fulfills the law by explaining the law, you know, which is what he does in this text today. Jesus fulfills the law by explaining it and giving its fullest expression in the kingdom of God. Right? And he tells us it's more than outward obedience, right? It's more than outward obedience. It's about a changed heart is the idea that he communicates. And so in the section today, Jesus looks at six examples of the written law that really are popular with the Pharisees, that they believe that they keep you know, to perfection, that they believe that they live out the way they're supposed to. And, and what he does is he takes these laws and he demonstrates how their religious observance of these commands is still not good enough to get them in the kingdom of heaven, right? Because the point he's trying to make is they need to have a changed heart. And so we start in verse number 21, where he says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. I mean, and that's exactly what the law says. The law is very clear. You shall not murder, right? And the law has made provisions for those who murder that they will also be put to death. They will be judged. But the thing that you have to understand, people, that we have, the thing that we have to keep in mind here is you may absolutely be able to keep yourself from physically harming someone and killing someone, but you could still have the same bitterness and hatred and ugliness in your heart as the one who does murder. Inside, you can be identical to someone who does murder. Right? Again, it's like telling your child, say, I'm sorry. They might say the words, but it doesn't mean that it's there in their heart. And so Jesus says, that's what the law tells us. And then he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says, just because you don't commit the physical murder doesn't mean that you're innocent. Because you're not. Just because you say you know, that you're sorry doesn't mean that you really are. If your heart's not right, it doesn't matter what your actions are. Your heart's still not right. The kingdom life isn't about perfect behavior. It's about living with a changed heart. That's why Jesus says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, what Jesus is saying here, and I want you to hear me on this. He's saying that peace with your brother in Christ, because as we talking about, he says brother, he's talking about your, your Christian brother. He's saying that peace with your brother in Christ is more important than your religious practices. Your relationship, preserving your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ is more important to God than your religious practices. Understand this. There have been people throughout history who will sit in church, have perfect attendance, do all the things that you're supposed to do and pray and read the Bible and worship and on and on and on who refuse to go and make things right with their brother in Christ because of something stupid. God is saying... That your reconciling with your brother and sister in Christ is more important than your religious practices. 
that he says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Or in other words, settle your issues with others quickly. Right? Make peace with your adversaries quickly. Otherwise, things can go bad from bad to worse. Right? That's the point. Now, now what, what, what's Jesus getting at here in this little section? Right? Does he want you to get up right now and go out you know, and go find that person that you're irritated with or is irritated with you? Go make peace and then come back for the rest of the sermon? Make sure you check the score while you're gone, by, by the way. Right? No, that's not what he's saying. Right? The point that Jesus is making is that living in the kingdom of God is not simply about avoiding acting out of anger where you actually don't physically harm someone. The point is the kingdom life is about nurturing relationships. If you're angry with someone, then deal with it. If someone's angry with you, deal with it. Make it right. The point that we need to understand is we need to walk in grace in all of our relationships. It's more than just avoiding punching someone in the face. It's more than just avoiding, you know, causing someone physical harm. It's more than just avoiding flipping someone off when you're driving down the freeway. It's more than ranting about them on Facebook. It's about proactively walking in grace and showing everyone around you an extraordinary mercy and humility. In fact, the Apostle Paul echoes this in his letter to the Romans where he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haunty, which means arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, that's the big part right there. So far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. That's the point that Jesus is making. Kingdom life is not about obeying external rules. It's about a changed heart that manifests itself in the way that we treat other people. It's not about avoiding violence. It's about grace and mercy and humility humility and seeking to nurture all of the relationships that we have around us for good. Then Jesus moves on to the next subject. And he says, and you've heard it said, but you shall not commit adultery. The Bible is explicitly clear about the prohibition against sexual immorality. What we do with our bodies is gravely, gravely important to God. But Jesus makes it clear it is not just limited to just your body. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already, already committed adultery with her in his heart. If there's anything our culture needs to hear, it is this. Jesus is saying just because you avoid committing physical acts with someone else doesn't make you innocent. It's not just about your actions, it's about your hearts. If you have lustful thoughts about someone who's not your spouse, you are not just you, you were just as guilty as someone who actually did the act. Now, this is a radical equivocation that Jesus makes. It's a radical equivocation, right? I mean, he's saying, you know, the, the, the thought is as bad as the deed. But here we are. Knowing he didn't come to change our behavior, he came to change our heart. He doesn't want you to just walk in physical purity. He wants you to walk in emotional and spiritual purity as well. That's why flirting is such a big deal. That's why, you know, that, that's why fantasies are such a big deal. That's why pornography is such a big deal. Because you spiritually have the ability to commit adultery in your heart with someone else. Right? And, and believe it or not, that's still a violation of them. It's a violation against their spouse. It's a violation against their family. It's a violation against your own wife or your own husband. And and most importantly, it's a violation against God. And God takes it seriously. That's why Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. And these words are absolutely staggering, right? These words should shock you. It should wake you up. Because Jesus, what he's telling you is that immorality and sin, these are not trivial issues. Immorality and sin are grievously important issues to God. God hates sin. We need to understand that. We need to embrace that. We need to preach that and teach that God hates sin. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is certainly, absolutely, unquestionably a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. And people say, well, how can that, there be a dichotomy? Because you can't have love without wrath. And you say to me, that's not possible. Let me just tell you, if you love someone like a child and somebody does your child wrong, you will experience holy wrath, right? It's the same thing. God is a God of love and he's a God of wrath and his wrath burns white hot against the destructive sin in our lives. In fact, his wrath is so overwhelming. It is so all-consuming that it took the death of his very own son to set us free from his wrath. See, God doesn't take it lightly. And so therefore, do not, for those people who don't repent, I want you to hear me, for people who refuse to repent and believe the gospel, and trust Christ through faith and have their sins forgiven, they will one day end up in hell and they will experience the full fury of God's wrath. But those who repent and believe are spared that. But Jesus tells us, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, throw it away. It's better that way. Now, the question that we have to ask is, does Jesus literally mean this? Does he expect us to mutilate our bodies that way? Because if it does, then every Christian you have ever met and ever will meet should be missing a hand or miss, and missing an eyeball. I, I'm serious. I mean, I'm seriously, if, if this is what Jesus wants, then, then, then the identifying mark of a Christian isn't the way we love each other. It's the fact that we wear an eye patch and have a stump. Okay? The mark of a Christian should be that. But fortunately... That's not the point. Jesus is using hyperbole. He's using hyperbolic language here to help us to see how important the, the issue of sin is and for us to take it seriously. Jesus says sin is serious and avoiding overt physical acts of sin, though important, is not enough. You need to deal with the sin in your hearts. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What Paul and Jesus both are communicating is we need to take radical steps in our lives to deal with the sin in our hearts. As the, the Puritan preacher John Owen says, be killing sin or it be killing you. So gouging out your eyes and cutting off your hand is really just a graphic metaphor for saying is you need to do what it takes to deal with the sin in your hearts. You need to do what it takes to kill sin, right? Which means that you may need to put up some guardrails in your life. You may need to take action to control your, beha your behavior and the sin in your heart, which means you may need someone to act as an accountability partner in your life. You may need to avoid that handsome guy at work, right? You may need to stop flirting, even though you think it's okay. You may need to put some rules into place in your life. Like, you know what? I never have a meal with anyone of the opposite sex that's not my spouse. Or, you know what? I never have more than one glass of wine with dinner. Or, or, or you know what? I never even touch the stuff. Maybe that's who you are, right? Or maybe you're, you need to put a rule in your life that says, I never touch the computer unless there's some accountability software on it. Jesus is saying that the kingdom life simply isn't about avoiding physically acting out sin. It's also about doing what, you, what it takes by the grace of God working in you, right? And the, and the work of the, the Holy Spirit to sanctify your heart and your mind to kill sin. And then Jesus moves on and he says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Which, by the way, is probably one of the most 
misquoted, misunderstood, and misapplied verses in all the Bible. And there's a lot to be said about marriage. And believe me, we can do a whole sermon series on it, and we probably will. But I want you to understand where this is coming from, all right, what the certificate of divorce is about here, all right? See, the thing is, is the law, of Moses, the law of Moses did allow for that. And the reason for the law was because men would just simply be unpleased with their wives and they would abandon them. They would abandon their wives and not divorce them, which means then they couldn't go to be with anyone else. They were stuck. They couldn't move on with their lives and marry someone else. Now, that might seem weird to us in our culture, but in that culture, women were treated like property. They weren't much better than, than your camel, Right? And they had no real way to provide for themselves. And so if the husband left you, right, if, if you were married and he left you and you were unable to remarry, then you were really left to survive by eking out a, a living as a beggar, as somebody who would walk the fields, picking up the leftovers, or worse, that you would end up as a prostitute. And so Moses wrote the law to protect women, to give them an opportunity to have a decent life. That they would actually have a paper that says, they're not married anymore. But Jesus addresses the bigger issue. He says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You see, Jesus, you know, so, you see, Jesus says later on in, in, the, in the book of Matthew in chapter 19, that the reason why that this law was there to permit them to give a certificate of divorce is because Moses knew that their hearts were hard. And as time went on, the sanctity of marriage then as, as now, um, in that culture, uh, the sanctity of marriage began to be diminished and men were sending away their wives for the silliest, for the silliest of reasons, like burning their dinner or not keeping the house clean enough. They would just be unpleased and they would just send them away. In that culture, women were not much better than property. And so, and so a wife, if she did something the husband didn't like, if she backtalked him or if she you know, just didn't shine his shoes the right way, he just sent her away. And then he was still free to go marry someone else, leaving her high and dry. And so there was, so they were required then by law to give a divorce certificate so their women would not be considered runaway harlots, that they wouldn't be considered, you know, un, unfaithful women. It was there to protect these women. But Jesus, again, once again, looks past the physical act of doing the right thing by giving these women a certificate of divorce. Jesus was actually trying to deal with their hearts. In essence, what he's saying is if you divorce your wife for anything other than sexual immorality, you, you make her commit adultery. Now, I want you to listen to what he's saying here, okay? This is really the part that people want to overlook. They want to talk about all around this, all right? Like it's somebody else's responsibility. But look who's pinned the responsibility on. He says, if you, if you divorce your wife... You make her commit adultery. You make her do it. You're the cause of it. You're the cause of her pain. You're the cause of her conviction. You're the cause of the burden. The Greek word is emphatic about, that you, about them being the cause. You're the cause of her ruined life. You're the cause of her sin. That's what Jesus is saying. If you divorce your wife, you are the cause of this, this to happen. And so you can write your certificate of divorce if you want to, but it doesn't absolve you of your responsibility is what he's saying. You're still morally responsible. You are ultimately responsible to God for how her life turns out. It's not good enough for you to do the right thing by giving her a certificate of divorce. The right thing for you to do is to stay married to her. The right thing for you to do is stay committed to her. The right thing for you to do is to love her as Christ loved the church. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying kingdom life is about fulfilling our obligations. Fulfilling the obligations that we have. And again, Christ is calling us not to obey some rules or abide by the exceptions and the loopholes. He's calling us to live radically different lives through a changed heart. And then he moves to the next section and says, again, you have heard it said that those of old, you shall swear shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for, this, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath 
by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, this particular section, again, is another one of those that, that causes great confusion. And for many people who read it, without actually understanding the context, they get all confused. In fact, I have heard many people look at this text and say, you see, the Bible says that you're not supposed to ever swear an oath. That's what the Bible says, right? Regardless if it's about your job or a political office or you have to go to court, they're saying it's a sin to swear an oath is what they say because they're misunderstanding the text. Remember, what, what, what happens here is, is Jesus is dealing with Pharisees who are very legalistic, but they also know all the loopholes, right? And they, they are very self-righteous. And what you need to understand is many people at the time believed that if I swear by God to do something, because I swear by God, it has to be done. It doesn't matter if it costs me everything I have. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's nearly impossible to do. It doesn't matter how hard it is, how much trouble I get. You know, I go through to, to, if I swear by God, I have to do it, right? And so that meant is if you swore to give half your money away, then you had to. You were, you were obligated because you swore by God. That means if you swore that you would help someone in the time of need, then come what may, then you had to live up to that, right? Swearing to God was a serious business. And so people began to swear by other things than just God, like the temple or, you know, their country or, or their own head or by their family. And the idea was that, that, that an oath that, that didn't involve God's name then wasn't quite as binding in tough circumstances as something that was swore to God. And so people would actually feel justified for failing to uphold their agreements when things didn't work out. They would say, well, I'm not really obligated to fulfill that, you know, that, that promise. I didn't swear to God, right? And there were people who, who felt justified by that. And what Jesus was saying is that in the kingdom of heaven, it's going to be different, right? Those who follow me don't have to swear at all because when they say yes, that's exactly what it means. When they say no, that's exactly what it means. Right? Their word is as good as any oath. And the idea here that those who belong to God live such radically different lives that, that, that you should be able to trust what they say because, because of who they are in here, not because they swear some oath out here. You should be able to trust them because they've been radically changed. They don't live like the rest of the world lives. They keep their promises. They keep their commitments. They keep their word. If they say they're going to be there at three, then guess what? They will be there at three. If they say that they're going to pay that bill, then you can count on the fact it's going to get done. If they say that, that they're going to take care of the issue, then you can take it to the bank that it's going to be handled. Jesus calls people in the kingdom of God, his children to live a life of integrity that is demonstrated by, by the fact that, 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 that the oaths we swear to, the word that we give is kept. It's not demonstrated by some big you know, oaths to God. It's demonstrated by the, our behavior in a changed heart. People in the kingdom of God are expected to keep their word. And then in verse 38, he moves on. You've heard it said, the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And this is the law of retribution that you do find in the Old Testament. If you were hurt or injured or suffered a loss, then you could exact retribution, but it was a controlled retribution, right? You, you, you only took what was taken from you, eye for an eye, right? So in your anger, you don't go take two eyes, right? right? If, if you lose a sheep, then, you, you know, because you're really, really mad, you don't go kill their whole herd. The idea is, is an exacting retribution. And the idea was that you have no rights to think, you know, that you can take someone else's stuff and harm somebody else and not expect a fair reprisal, right? You have every right under the law to settle the score. And, and, and you have every right to get even. But Jesus turns the tables even on this and says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him you know, have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Which we would look at that and go, oh, wow. Yeah, I, I, I can't do that. I, I, I can't live up to that. I mean, this is crazy. And understand... 
As difficult as this is for us to hear, it was exactly the same thing for Jesus' disciples. They too were probably going, yeah, Jesus, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I can't do that. Right? You're crazy. But, but, but you have to understand it's probably even worse for them than it is for us. Because the reason why it's worse is because they lived in a world full of oppression. We live in a world of freedom. Right? They were conquered people. The Romans had conquered them and they were subject to their rule. That means Romans were the first-class citizens and everyone else was a second-class citizen. And for the Israelites, the idea of retribution was heavy on their mind because they were subjected to you know, political and physical and economic exploitation. They wanted to pay back their oppressors for all the injustices that they were doing to them. That's why there were so many rebellions. That's why there's so many skirmishes. That's why there were so many, so many um, uprisings. Because they wanted to settle the score and get even. But Jesus, in turn, he turns around and he turns the table on them and he says, you know, you are certainly within your rights, as a, as a, you know, according to the law, as a citizen of Israel. But as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you're called to live a radically different life than that. Yes, you can certainly exact your revenge, but what good is it going to do for you in the long run anyway? You should be more concerned about the expansion of the kingdom than your own personal grievances. You should be willing to set aside your rights for others so they can glorify God and be saved too. That's the point, right? And he gives them four relevant examples of how to live this out. First of all, he says, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, please understand, this is one of those things that people really take the wrong way. Okay? This is not an admonition of Jesus for you to allow people to beat on you. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. Right? This is not Jesus saying that you have no right to defend yourself. There's, this is a relevant example in history that the idea here is someone slaps you on the face it wasn't so much to physically harm you. It was intended to insult you. It was intended to dishonor you. If you slap someone in the face and they cower down and left, you demonstrated that you, you, you were better than them, that you dominated them. It was like, hey, pop, what are you going to do about it? Right? That's what the, the intention was. It was not so much to physically hurt. It was to, to insult. It was an it was a an offense. It was, it was a wound to a person's pride. And so the idea was if someone offends you, then you give it right back to them, right? But what Jesus is communicating here is that if someone offends you, if someone insults you, if someone impugns your ca character, you don't retaliate. You don't give it back, right? He doesn't say walk away and cower Actually, he says, turn to the cheek, which means stand right there, stand your ground and, and demonstrate that you're not fearful, right? But you don't give it back. What you need to do is take it and you need to trust in God, the one who is the one that avenges. Because think about it. We've seen what happens when someone gets offended and someone goes and tries to stick up for themselves and it just spirals into a mess. I mean, that's what social media is all about, right? Isn't that what Facebook's really all about? Some knucklehead posts some, something stupid about someone else. Someone gets offended by it, and then the offended party comes and they decide that they're going to stick up for themselves. And it just goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. No one's listening, right? And everybody around is going, oh, Lord, please shut up. You know what I mean? And it just turns out to be a mess. It doesn't accomplish anything. For instance, I just want you to know, I mean, there are a lot of people who have very strong opinions about how the schools are run. Strong, strong opinions, okay? But the problem is, is many people that have these strong opinions don't really know what they're talking about. Um, because they don't do what they need to do to get informed. They don't go to school board meetings. They don't, they don't read the meeting minutes. They don't go talk to the people in charge. They don't actually read about the law, right? They just go to Facebook and they boldly express their opinions. And you have what we call the bandwagoners, who are like, they're going, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're all stupid, right? They don't know what they're doing, right? And, and, and it just goes on and on, and the thread just blows up, and you're like, oh, Lord. And I think to myself sometimes, as a rational person, I could jump in here and clear this mess up. If I could just 
And I think to myself, you know, I could straighten this out. And then I realize, Sherman, this is one of those turn the other cheek moments, right? Because the fact of the matter is me jumping in here is not going to make it better, right? Me jumping in here is not going to change their mind. And it's certainly not going to further the kingdom of heaven, which is what I really care about. And so I let it go. The idea of turning, it's, 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 I just turn the other cheek. If someone offends you, right, that's the idea of turning the other cheek. If somebody offends you, embarrasses you, um, upsets you, you just don't fight about it, right? Though you technically have the right of retribution, as, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you should restrain yourself for the good of the kingdom. The second example that he gives is similar, but it's a legal setting. Jesus says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let, you know, let him have your cloak as well. And these were startling, startling words to, to his disciples. Okay, that, this is not what they expected out of him because you have to understand what he's talking about when he says cloak and tunic. All right? His tunic is, is your inner garment that's like near your skin. It's soft. It's comfortable, right? And your cloak is your outer garment. It is your, your jacket. All right? And a tunic wasn't just like, hey, you, know, you, you, you wear it just to look good. It, it actually served a, you know, a functional purpose. It kept you warm. And then if you got hung out like you didn't have a place to go, it served as your blanket to keep you warm at night. In fact, it was a matter of life and death not to have your tunic. In fact, it was against the law to take someone's tunic, I mean, excuse me, take their cloak, it was against the law to take their cloak um, as, as collateral for a debt because they had to have it back by nightfall is what the law said because they could die a free, you know, by freezing to death if they didn't have it. And Jesus says, so you have to understand how important this, this, these pieces of clothing are. And then Jesus says, if someone takes you to court, sues you for your tunic, then give it to them and then also give them your cloak, right? Which seems like a very crazy idea, but Jesus, what he's doing is he's, he's communicating to us is that when, when you have a dispute with someone, right? The, the heart of what Jesus is getting at is when you have a dispute with somebody, right? Somebody has something against you, do what it takes to settle it. If it costs you a couple bucks extra to do it, handle it. If it costs you more than you wanted to, to settle it, just settle it, right? Don't concern yourself about your personal rights. Concern yourself with, with making something right and concern yourself with the kingdom of God is what Jesus is, is pointing out here. And then the third example is where Jesus says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And this is historically significant because that was the Roman law. If, you were, if a Roman soldier saw you on the side of the road or a Roman official saw you, he could say, hey, you, come right here, pick that up, start carrying it. And you were obligated by the law to pick it up and then carry it down the road. But he couldn't make you go more than one mile. Right? That was the limit of the law that there was a limitation. He couldn't cause you to carry it any further than that. So if it was supplies or weapons or whatever, you had to fulfill your obligation of one mile, okay? Now, Jesus says, if they make you go one mile, go with them a second mile or the extra mile, which we've heard many times. By the way, when you hear someone say, go the extra mile, they're, they're quoting the Bible in essence, okay? That's where this idea comes from. The idea here is if someone requires your help, don't begrudgingly do the minimum. Go above and beyond. Do more than what's required. All right? And, and, and here's the thing. We're Americans, right? Right? We stand our ground. You ain't taking advantage of me. I need, just, I need you to do this. My job description says I ain't got to do that. Right? I mean, that, that's where we are. But the reality is, is we're called as servants of the kingdom of heaven to go the extra mile. Right? All right, okay, you know, I'll help you move, but man, I ain't going to be there more than like 15 minutes. I'm moving three boxes. That's it, right? The idea here is the king, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, ultimately, is when you serve people, whether it's at your job or whether it's your volunteer work, or whether it's the way you raise your family, your service to other people isn't just to them. Ultimately, it's for God. That's the idea. When you serve other people, you're to serve them without the limitations of here's as far as I'm going to go and that's it. It's the idea that I'm going to go, I'm going to go further than you expect of me. I'm going to show my love by going further than what's required of me. And in the process, you display how good God really is. That's the point. Don't begrudgingly do the minimum service, you know, uh, do more than what's expected. 
That way you, you're a light that will shine, and people will see that and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, the fourth example he uses here, Jesus says, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, the idea here isn't for you, for people to take advantage of you as Christians, because I love how non-Christians know parts of the Bible, and this is one of them. Because the idea isn't for someone to just be able to come up to you and say, give me money, you can't refuse me. That's not how that's supposed to work, right? You're not supposed to try to lend money every every person you meet, regardless of of whether or not you you think you can trust these people. That's not the point. The point that Jesus is calling us all to is radical generosity. That we need to be radically generous with the world around us. We as Christ followers and the, and, and the citizens uh, of the kingdom of heaven are, are supposed to be among the most generous people in the entire world. We should be able and willing to meet the needs of others. We should be willing to give and to share and to help other people. Even is the time that we don't think they deserve it. <laughs> even to those people that, that you know, we do our best you know, to help and they keep coming back. That's why we as a church have decided with our food pantry, I have people all the time ask me, well, what do you make them come, you know, come to your church? Do you, how do, you, how do you, 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 you make them fill out income? For, no. Okay, our food pantry, what we've decided is we're going to feed people that show up here. That is what we're going to do. Right? We don't require that they come to this church here. We don't require that they prove their income. We don't require that they promise that they'll never, ever do drugs or alcohol. Our mission is to feed hungry people and give food to those who ask. Our mission is to glorify God by helping people. And even those people that we might not think deserve it. We give to people who ask. That's what we're called to do. If they ask, help them. And this is one of the ways that we as a church can do that. And so, so this in particular, this, so, so in this particular section, Jesus, with all these examples, is basically saying, we need to give up our rights, in essence. The right to retribution, the right to, to get even, the right to, to not be offended, the right to not be insulted. Right? We, what we need to do instead is we need to get busy serving other people, even those people we don't like. Even those people that sometimes take advantage of us. Even our enemies, which sets us up for the last law that Jesus addresses. He said, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Which is a statement that is really familiar to most of us. We've heard this before, but what you might not know is actually in this text, Jesus is kind of getting at the heart of of the issue. Because in these few words, you see the root of the Pharisees' uh, uh, corruption in their hearts. I want you to notice Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and, your, and hate your enemy. And in this particular saying, there is a true statement from the law, but there is also a false statement in here that is not from the law, but was added over time. So the true statement in here is to love your neighbor. That is something that, that has been preached in the Old Testament over and over and over again. You read the Old Testament, you will see that. Love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor. Okay, The false statement on the other hand, that Jesus is kind of pointing to is the part about hating your enemies. Because nowhere, nowhere in the Old Testament does it ever, ever, ever say to hate your enemies. Nowhere. Not any place in the Old Testament are you encouraged to hate your enemies. In fact, you're encouraged the opposites. If Proverbs 25, 21 If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Exodus 23, verses 4 through 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you should bring it back to him. If you see a donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it, and you shall rescue it with him. So the idea of hating your enemy, Enemies is not an Old Testament law thing. It's not even biblical in any stretch of the imagination. But over time, though, these attitudes changed, especially since the nation of Israel and Judah were conquered. They were conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. Right? Hundreds of years of being 
um, enslaved to these other nations. Hundreds of years of oppression and foreign rule festered up in their hearts to the point that they just felt justified to hate their enemies. They felt vindicated for hating their enemies. They felt like it was, it was holy to hate their enemies. They felt like, in essence, it was their duty to hate people, especially the Romans. Because the Romans stood for everything that they hated. Right? The Romans were pagans. The Romans were brutal. The Romans were unclean. The Romans took advantage of them. The Romans didn't respect their religion or traditions or their identity as a people. And so it seems to them, you know, to hate their enemies would be good things, right? And so over time, the law or their interpretation of the law began to change. And the Pharisees thought that they were righteous. They thought that they were doing the good thing before God by loving their Jewish neighbors, but then turning and hating their Roman enemies. Now notice, Jesus didn't take the time to address the issue here. He actually moves right past it, and he goes right to the heart of what kingdom life is supposed to be about. Right to the heart, what it means to live a radically different life. And he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay? He says, you are to love your enemies the same way you love your neighbor. Right? So that person that, that gets under your skin, that person that just, ugh, right? You are to love them like that little old sweet lady that lives next to you. You, know, you understand? That's what he's saying here. And then he says, so you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. He says, if you belong to God, if you're one of his children, you will love your enemies. And then he says, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You see, you should love your enemies because God himself loves his enemies and he still does. God still pours out his common grace on everyone even those people who hate him, even those who blaspheme him, even his, his enemies that, that, that just continually reject him. He gives them life. He gives them food. He provides for them. He gives them sunshine and daylight. If they live in America, he gives them freedom. Right? He gives them the love of families and friendships. God loves his enemies and he's good to them, which is good news for you. Because if, guess what? If you are a believer... If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you were once an enemy of God. Now, if you're not a believer, if you've not repented and, and put your trust in Christ, you are now an enemy of God. Right now, you are his enemy. And if you don't believe, right, then the wrath of God abides on you. And you should repent and believe the gospel and put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ so you're no longer his, en his enemy. But the thing is, is if you are a believer, then you at one time were his enemy, right? But guess what? He didn't give you what you deserved. He didn't give you the justice you deserved. He let you live, right? He gave you the breath of life. He provided for your needs. And more importantly, he sent his son to die on your behalf to forgive you of your sins. And then he invited you into a life-saving relationship with him so that you could be saved. Praise the Lord that he loves his enemies. And so should you. Then Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, which is a, a, another way of saying people we really hate. Even the tax collectors do the same. right? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do, do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus, is, he, he lays it right out. If you love those who love you, if you care about who, those who care about you, if you're good to the people that are, that, that are good to you, you're not righteous. You're not, you're not doing anything special. Because even the worst people do that. Everybody does that. There's nothing special about loving people who love you. There's nothing special about being good to people who are easy to be good to. There's nothing godly or righteous in loving people that are really easy to love. And if you... If that's your standard of, of righteousness, if you think that makes you a good person, what you need to understand is you're no better off than any person who is living in open sin before God. In fact, you're no better off than the criminal who just deeply loves his mama. Right? Because even they are capable of loving those who love them back. No, we're not called to be like men. We're called to be like God. We're to love our 
enemies. You're to be good to them, pray for them, seek their welfare. That's what the kingdom of, of life is all about. Loving like God loves, which is a radically different way of life. And, and, and what is... And that's exactly what this entire section of text is all about that Jesus has been going through. It isn't about following a bunch of rules to the letter so that we can win some merit badges and win some Jesus points. It's about living a life of radically changed hearts given to us by God. It's, it's, it's a life, it's living a life where instead of letting your anger, you know, control us, we instead build healthy relationships with people around us and we resolve conflict quickly. It's living a life where we don't just simply avoid sinful behavior, right? We actively seek to put to death by radical steps the sin in our lives. It's about a life where we honor the institution of marriage and and we take care of our spouses, right? And we meet our obligations. It's about a life where we don't just make oaths because, you know, where we just make oaths. We actually, because we follow God, our word is, is worth its weight in gold. It's to live a life where you set aside your right to avenge yourself and to settle the score, but instead you live selflessly for other people, even when they take advantage of you. It's a life where you seek to grow and to be like God and to learn to love everyone around you without hesitation and reservation or limitation. Even those knuckleheads that are so stinking hard to love. And you all got some of those in your life. That's the radically different life that Jesus is calling us to. That's the life you know, where we, we don't just check off a list of things to do, but instead it's a life where we do what Jesus says. We die to ourselves daily. We pick up our cross and we follow him daily. And then at the end of this section, Jesus takes everything he said and he raises the stakes one more time. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your father is perfect. And if you're like me, you will say with more than a little resignation in your voice, that's impossible. And you're right, it is impossible. And that's the point. Because with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The thing that we need to understand and believe and walk away with is that we cannot live radically different lives by our own efforts. Right? We're just not going to accomplish this. this, is, this that's why this is not a list of to-dos. That's why this is not a thing that you can just check off. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, what you see is an impossible lifestyle that God is calling us to. We simply are not going to be able to accomplish this on our own, which is the point. That's the point. This radically different life forces us in our weakness to turn our eyes heavenward and to set our hearts and minds on Christ. It forces us to understand that we fall short, that we fall short of the rules, and that, that we need desperately to be transformed. The ideal of the kingdom forces us to turn our hearts and minds to Jesus and to depend on him. Because we need him to change us. You can't change yourself. You need him to change you. You see, Christ did not come to change your behavior. He came to change your heart. That's what we need. We need to have our hearts changed. And if you put your trust in Christ, the word says that God has given you a new heart. Right? He's given you a new spirit. And then it says that he will put his Holy Spirit inside of you and he will cause you, he will enable you to be able to obey his laws. It's him that does it. God will transform you into a person that can live this kind of life where we love our enemies and pray for those who hurt us. Jesus certainly loves you the way that you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. And the thing that we need to walk away with today is this radically different life not only requires a radical transformation of our hearts, it also requires a radical, radical dependence upon God. That is the whole point. It's impossible for you to do it, so depend on God. If you're going to live as God's people in the kingdom, it is not going to be by following a bunch of rules. 
It's going to be God enabling us to throw ourselves upon Jesus and holding on to him desperately, clinging to him and trusting him and depending upon him to shape us and to transform us into the people who are able to live the radically different lives that he's calling us to live. And so hear me on this. The message of the Sermon on the Mount is this. If you're not in the kingdom of heaven, you need to trust in Christ and be saved. If you are in the kingdom of heaven, you need to trust in Christ all the more to be transformed. So that way he can transform you to live the radically different life that he has been calling you to. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, your word speaks so deeply to my heart. And every one of these things that you bring up convict me of my shortcomings. And it demonstrates for me, Lord, that I am just not capable of this. It demonstrates for me that I am going to fall short over and over again because of my effort. But I praise you. The message behind this isn't for me to try to go out here and do something that's impossible for me to do. The message is for me to trust you more, to depend upon you more, And to know that if I truly trust you and depend upon you, you will change me this way. You will make me into someone who who loves my enemies. You will make me into someone who is willing to put others' needs before my own. You will make me into someone who is willing to set aside my rights for the cause of the kingdom. That you will shape me into someone, Lord, who is ready to, to do what it takes to put to death the sin in my life. None of these things are possible by my efforts and never will be. It's all possible because you decided for some reason to save a jerk like me and then in the process to change me ever more in the image of your son. And I just celebrate that and I rejoice in that. And I rest in that every day, Lord. As I read your word, I see how far that I've come, but I see how far I have to go. And I don't, just, I don't, I, and I don't, I don't get upset about it because I know that's you that's working in me. My job is to trust you. My job is to pray to you. My job is to read your word and to meet you and to fellowship and to love the, the people in this congregation and to trust the fact that through your work of the Holy Spirit, you're going to make me different. And I pray that all of us, Lord, would embrace that truth. That we would walk in that, that we'd stop trying to prove how good we are and just throw ourselves on you. To trust you to remake us. And that you would bear the fruit in our lives that demonstrate that we belong to you. Lord, and I pray, Father, that you'd raise up a people in this church who get it and who are willing to leave this place and live radically different lives and go out there and kick open the the gates of hell and go spread the hope of Christ with this community and the rest of the world. And I pray for those who need you today, Lord, whether it's physical needs or emotional needs or spiritual needs, that you would be here, you would connect with them, and you would help to see to it that they have what they need, Father. And I pray that you would bless and protect all those in this congregation and you'd be glorified in everything that we say and all we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.